Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church Podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. Man, hallelujah again. Uh, my name is Garrison, pastoral intern and elder here at the Vine. Uh, pleasure just to be with you all in worship and sing hallelujah uh, to our great God today. And uh, I love Jordan, but I wish he wasn't as good as he is at his job, because uh, he kind of stole my sermon uh, just f- through those songs. That's literally everything we're talking about. But how beautiful is it that we can sing of the truth and read of the truth and hear of the truth of salvation in and through Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, so it's great to be with you guys again. Um, in question, we got any Honda car lovers out there? A few? Okay. CRV? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I both came into our, our marriage with both of our high school vehicles, uh, two Hondas, one Civic, one CRV. Uh, and then shortly after our first daughter was born, uh, we were at 237,000 miles on the Honda Civic. Uh, the struts completely worn down. Uh, the shock absorbency was that of a Fred Flintstone car. Uh, honestly, felt like square wheels at times when you would hit a pothole. I, my teeth would just grind at the, the sensation that went through me and the sound. It was terrible. Uh, the other vehicle, uh, the Honda CRV, was about 212,000 miles. Uh, so a lot of miles on these cars. And it started doing this beautiful thing of powering off while you were driving it. If you have a 2007 Honda CRV, be cautioned. Once you hit 200,000 miles, that's when the problem starts. And there's still no recall for it. Uh, needless to say, we needed a new vehicle uh, for safety for our daughter and our family. And so I, I did the dreaded thing, um, and I incurred debt. I uh, took, a, took out a, a loan to get a car and had a car payment. was not a fan of this, and so I was, I was determined to pay this car off as soon as possible. Uh, set up auto draft with my bank, so every month money would go out, go down, pay my principal the loan, and I stamped the day of when that car payment would be gone. I was looking forward to that day, and I just set it, and I forget it, and I walked away, and I said, yeah, one day I'm going to walk in, I'm going to grab that title, this thing is going to be mine, debt is going to be paid, but let me throw out a hypothetical to you. I've been looking forward to this day. Remember, I said it and I forget it. It's been going on. I'm fully confident in technology and the system. I see the money coming out of my bank account every month. I never check Capital One because I trust them and their awesome technology. I show up on that day to receive my title. Oh, yeah, debt's paid off, only to find out this. All the time I thought the money was being taken out of my account and crediting my loan, there was an error, and it was debiting it the entire time. So over the course of me paying it, I never paid a single cent down on the principal. But my debt only grew, and the interest made it grow even further. And my confidence in that day was completely dashed. I thought I was going to receive a title in ownership of this car, the declaration that my debt had been paid, and actually the exact opposite has occurred. Now, I paint that hypothetical for you because that's what Paul's scenario is in Philippians 3 that he wants to show to us. See, he's very clear in Romans 3 when he says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means we're in great need. 
We have broken fellowship with God. We are no longer in right standing with him. And one day we will go before him and we have to stand before him and plead our case as to why it is that we should be welcomed into his kingdom as righteous children. Where will your confidence be in that day? What will you take into that courtroom with you? Is it that you're here every Sunday? Is it that you're a nursery worker? Is it that you were baptized when you were five? Is it that you're a whole heck of a lot better than your grumpy, mean old neighbor? Because you might enter in on that day, Paul is saying, and it's all going to be useless. That you're going to see all of those things that you brought with you are actually working against you when you try to plead your case for righteousness before God. And he says it's only found in this one place that you have to enter that day and your confidence must be in this and this alone, knowing Christ and nothing else. Knowing Christ and nothing else. And if we were to define knowing Christ today just very simply, I want to say it's this. It's putting all of your eggs in his basket. You can diversify your eggs and put them in a lot of baskets, but you'll show up to that day And you'll see that your case is not very strong. All of your eggs have to be in his basket. You have to look to his life, his death, his resurrection in faith as your only claim to fellowship with God. Jonathan Edwards, uh, Puritan pastor of the 1700s, sat down one day and wrote 70 resolutions. He said, for the rest of my life, I resolve to do this and nothing Else. And so stealing a page from his book, I want to say today that in becoming confident in Christ, we resolve to this church. We resolve to know him, Jesus, in the power of his resurrection and nothing else today and the rest of our days that we would have no other claim than Jesus in the power of his resurrection. Would you all please stand with me if you are able? We're going to read from Philippians 3. It's the word of God starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." said you can put 
your eggs in, in many baskets, all those other baskets, the word says will fail. But this, the word of the Lord, will stand forever. If you want to bank on something, bank on Christ. Today, bank on his word and its truth, that it will deliver the promise that it has offered when everything else will fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sinless Savior who died. And God, the just, satisfied that you would no longer look on us in our sin, but you would pardon us as we sang. We thank you for the truth of your word today. Uh, Let it just go forth into the hearts of your people. Lord, revive hearts and awaken hearts to know Jesus and Jesus alone. That he is what is going to carry us safely back into fellowship with you. Lord, we just leave today with the confidence nowhere else. Nowhere else but in the name, in the person, in the work of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to be seated. Thank you. So Paul, he's on a, on a journey to tell us this main point that there is no other thing more valuable than the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And on that direction, he, he takes us through two warnings and a personal testimony. And that first warning is this, watch out for something new. From verse one, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul is saying, I'm not offering you anything new. I'm offering you the same things. He's calling us to rejoice. And where? Rejoice only in the Lord. A phrase and a word that's been used now in five of his 13 letters. He is a broken record, and he is a broken record for your safety, he says. It is a safeguard for you that I am not trying to tickle your ears with a new teaching that I'm not grasping for new thoughts and new ideas to keep you as a captive audience, but I am looking out for you as a shepherd, as one who truly cares for you, your heart and your soul, that I want to see you brought safely back into fellowship with God by not bolstering myself, but bolstering Christ in Christ alone. We love novelty. I was thinking about TED Talks. I think their slogan is literally a marketplace for ideas and new ideas. I I mean, I've binge-watched TED Talks before. I love love the new ideas and the new thoughts. If they think it's going to bring you the next step, carry you along in this journey, because we often feel there's something lacking. We're waiting on a new or fresh idea or a habit to help kickstart us and bring about that satisfaction that we're looking for. But that's the very danger that Paul is actually warning us to avoid. Because our, crew, our true cause for rejoicing is not going to be in some new teaching. But it's going to be in the Lord. Who he is and what he has done. We're not waiting on another Messiah. We're not awaiting on another to come. But the Lord who always said, I'm going to come. And the Lord who said, I'm always going to be there for my people. And the Lord who's going to come back. And finish the work once and for all. The gospel is that good news. It's that Jesus is restoring you and I into right relationship with God. And he's restoring the world once and for all. And this good news, hear me, is lacking no good thing. 
So if you come here each Sunday asking when it is that we're gonna move beyond the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, because that has become old news to you, you're gonna be sadly disappointed because we will not move on from the message of the cross. We will not move on from the gospel. We will not move on from the resurrection of Jesus. We will not move on from the hope that we have in Jesus. I don't have 10 steps to your best life now to offer you. What I have to offer is the cross of Christ. What I have to offer is his resurrection. What I have to offer is the hope of his return. We don't need novelty. We only need to know Jesus Christ. And similar to this warning, Paul goes on to say, watch out for those who add to the gospel. In verse two and three, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, your ears might have perked up a little bit and they should have. That's Paul's point here. And so when he says, look out, watch out for the dogs, he's not talking about Saturday against Auburn. Sorry, Andrew. Um, But what he is doing is he just threw out a politically incorrect slur. The Jews had a name for the Gentiles. They'd walk around and say, look at that dog. Now, Paul is speaking about a Jewish group saying, no, no, no. You're the dogs. You're the ones who are robbing the Christians of their joy and enjoying fellowship with God. You are the evildoers. You're the mutilators of the flesh. And in Titus, Paul goes on to say this about them. You're insubordinate. You're empty talkers. You're deceivers. Are you starting to get the idea of how Paul feels about those who would add to the gospel? It's not kindly. He does not respect these men and what they are doing to rob us of the message of the good news by adding to it. This group, they were called the Judaizers. And they were a group of Jews that proclaimed Christ and. And being the operative word there. Doesn't matter what comes next, but they said strict adherence to the Jewish practices in order to be a true worshiper of God. And they were unsettling the Gentile believers in Christ by promoting that they first must be circumcised in order to be true worshipers of God. in a Bible study right now with a few guys on Wednesday going through the book of Mark, and we were noticing this uh, about the Pharisees. They spent all their time deciding who was on the outside that they never stepped inside themselves. Same thing going on here with the Judaizers. I was uh, playing a game of don't let it touch the ground with my four-year-old. You know, when you blow up a balloon, you hit it in the air, and you don't let it touch the ground. We were having fun playing that, and her two-year-old little brother comes in, and she then spends the rest of her time telling him how to play and that he can't play, and about 15 minutes later of us hitting it back and forth, she looks at me and said, Daddy, you won't even play with me too. And I said, sweet, we've been playing the last 15 minutes. You've been too preoccupied with how, telling others how to play the game and keeping them from playing the game that you haven't been playing the game yourself. That's these Judaizers. They were too busy telling people how to play the game and who couldn't play the game that they never played the game themselves and put all of their eggs 
in Jesus' basket. They thought the safe thing to do was to continue diversifying them, thinking on that day that'll work out better for me. That I didn't really, they didn't really have the faith to put it in Jesus. And Paul would have none of this, all of this nonsense uh, where they were trying to lead believers to boast in anything other than Christ alone. And so Paul reassures the Philippian church. He says, we are the circumcision, those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's saying the true believer puts zero confidence in the flesh and directs all of that confidence towards Christ. He even uses a play on words here uh, that you may not necessarily catch unless you go back to the original languages. Um, And it's to demonstrate the value that we should actually put on works uh, that we may do in order to justify ourselves. And he looks and says to the Judaizers, you think you're circumcising and setting yourself apart from God. You think you're doing a holy activity. Actually, what you're doing is you're castrating yourselves. You are severing yourself off from the work of Christ, the only work that justifies. And your confidence in the flesh is actually achieving the very opposite you hope to gain by the gospel. And again, the good news that we proclaim, it is lacking no good thing. We don't need to add to the gospel. We need only to know Jesus Christ. And here's another issue to adding to the gospel. I'm a data analyst in the software world, and last March of 2020, I had a great opportunity. A former boss calls me up uh, and says, hey, I want to offer you a senior-level position. I'm in a niche space of product analytics uh, that really helps software companies uh, drive their product forward. And so he wanted to bring me on in this new startup uh, to make that happen. And I'm feeling pretty great about myself, right? Not a lot of people are in this practice. I've got a lot of experience and expertise here, feeling pretty good about myself, uh, getting that senior level title, a little bit of a pay raise. My My direct boss is a VP who's brought me in here himself. I walk in this fully on my high horse. Um, problem is, I walk into a, a data and market intelligence provider company uh, where we have a full team of data scientists. And it took me all of about two days of being on calls to realizing I did not belong at all. I did not belong to call myself an analyst whatsoever. When I had to sit there and compare myself where I felt confident to these data scientists, man, I felt like a schmuck. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing here? And that's, that's the issue. If you insist on adding to the gospel by putting confidence in yourself, in your works, or in the I'm generally a good person, you have no other option. Hear me. You have no other option than be a victim of the comparison game. And that does not lead to more confidence. The comparison game is a moving target. It's a chasing of the wind, and you will forever go on, not building confidence, but only finding despair. Let Paul demonstrate. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless. Now, a lot of that may not have 
meant a whole lot to us, right? But that was a resume of resumes that he just put down in front of the Jewish people because he was not casual about his Judaism. He was elite in all ways is what he was saying. I was born into an elite family. I had private school education. I am a revered and superior social person in this community. I have unmatched passion to the point that I thought the Christians were not worshiping God and honoring him, that I persecuted the church and sought that men be jailed and killed at my own hands. And then he says, I'm also the goodiest of two shoes. And he had references. They would look at his life and they'd say, yeah, Paul. That's Saul at the time. Blameless. So Paul is sitting here saying, if you're feeling good about yourself and what you think you've earned because of your efforts, compare your life to mine and I will give you a whole lot of reasons to despair and not rejoice. Confidence in the flesh is misplaced confidence. It should be counted for nothing and that's exactly what Paul has been leading up to say is ultimate. Knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection and nothing else. Back to verse 7. But whatever I gain, I had. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, whatever boasting Paul used to do in himself, he's saying it was useless and wasted effort. In fact, it was rubbish, he says, which is a really kind word for dung to think about how he considered it. Because here's what Paul hopes. Back to our beginning illustration. He hopes to walk into that courtroom before the judgment of God, and he hopes to hear this declaration from the Lord, righteous child, Come in. And Paul's come to know the truth that there is no righteousness apart from Jesus. And so if he went that day and presented this case, here's the life of Paul, God, except me. The issue is it's actually going to work against him instead of for him. If you want to go up and present your works, your efforts and confidence in anything else other than Christ, your debt still has not been paid. If you walk in confident in that courtroom, you're going to leave in despair because the words will not be righteous child come in. Instead, Paul knows this, that you walk in that courtroom and you say to the prosecutor, here's the life of Jesus. He is my defense. He is my righteousness. What will you put your confidence in on that day? Will all of your eggs be in his basket? Or are you still playing the game of diversifying them, holding on to something, thinking it's gaining your acceptance, your approval before God? Paul's saying, ditch it. Grab those eggs as quick as you can and put them in Christ's basket. That's your defense on this day. That is where your justification will be had, where you will be declared righteous before God. 
on nothing that you have done, but everything that he has done, that the sinless Savior died, that my sinful soul might be counted free. For God the just has satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It's the beautiful word of an advocate. And when we say Christ is our advocate, it's literally a courtroom term that we would go up there And Jesus is saying, don't talk. I've got this. I will speak for you. And I will speak on your behalf. So Paul is secure. He feels very secure in his justification that he'll go before God and he will be ruled as righteous because he's putting all of his eggs in Christ's basket. But Paul, along the way, lost esteem He lost status, he lost wealth, he lost his health, he lost physical safety, his freedoms. Some of you are about to run. Is that really worth it? He'd stand up here before you and say, gladly. I would lose all of those things ten times over if it meant this, that I gain Christ. It allowed him not only to stand secure in judgment before God, but sufferings now and for a future hope. It says this in 10 and 11, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul lost a lot. And I know so many of you in here are suffering or have suffered many, many unbearable weights. You're coming in here today with weak knees because of the weight that you've been carrying around, asking the Lord, when is this going to be lifted? How do we come to the place Where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that these sufferings are nothing but light and momentary afflictions. I don't mean to say that and make light of what you're going through. And I don't think Paul does either. But he is saying that in knowing Christ, we can have confidence in our sufferings. We can have a confidence in our future hope that allows us to carry on and do this gain more of him. And that's what he is after. Middle of 2020 was a hard time for my family. It had nothing to do with COVID. It had everything to do with one late night just holding my six-month-old son gasping for air. And it says, you look online, if your child is breathing more than 60 breaths per minute, You get in the car and you go to the hospital immediately. I clocked him at 93 for like the next hour. Took two weeks in CHOA as a a diagnosis of a rare lung disease uh, that requires full-time oxygen. There wasn't a lot of answers, a lot of information for us. They just discharged us and sent us home next day. Oxygen equipment shows up. We got a six-month-old baby just sitting here still, just like his chest going. We didn't know which foot to put forward. 
felt alone, felt scared. I'm like holding this helpless child, just asking the Lord, let him breathe. Had him on a pulse oximeter, um, which measured his oxygen levels all night. Man, just <laughs> from 12 to 5 a.m., just going off, going off. He just wouldn't ever go up. I know some of y'all are dealing with like a lot more harder things, but it was really hard for our family. We just didn't know, like I said, what foot to put in front of the other. I still remember all the times of, uh, you know, he's a small child and he had to keep this on to, to get oxygen supply. But I, so we had to tape it to his face. And so every single day I was ripping just tape off. And I'm, I'm like weeping before the Lord here, making my, making my son bleed for, for this. And to have a, just a brief light moment, he's on like a 30-foot cord at home. Um, and people always ask me, like, what's the hardest thing? I was like, well, these days it's just him getting stuck. Uh, his cord gets stuck under furniture legs, around corners. And uh, it was really hard when he started crawling and walking. Um, Got to have a good laugh every now and then about that. But uh, I was so thankful for my wife because uh, for a few, months, a few months later, she came to me and just said, I'm so thankful to God. Because he stripped every ounce of control I have. And he gave me no choice but to look to him and to truly say I trust him with the life of my children. And I'm so thankful for her in that moment and and God now bringing that into our life that we would do this, have no confidence to look to ourselves and what we can accomplish and do in our sufferings, but only looking to him. It's not until Paul is saying everything has been stripped away. You no longer have the ability to look to yourself, but you have Christ and the power of his resurrection because here's the hope. Your suffering has an end. You're not just wishing it away endlessly with no end in sight. He's saying there is an end. That is the power of his resurrection. He's put an exclamation point and stamped it. There is an end to this suffering. And through that, I'm sharing in his sufferings, and I get to gain more of Christ. Because what God is doing in that suffering is he's bringing you more into his image. He's giving you more of Christ, more peace, more joy in the midst of it all. So Paul says there's hope now in your sufferings. But he also says there's hope in the future when he says that I would attain by any means possible the resurrection of the dead. That day that we're waiting for, when we see him face to face, and it's gone, all of it, sin, death, pain, suffering, evil, no more. We don't get that except for knowing Christ, Paul says. And when I think of that day, and do I agree with Paul in saying all this suffering is actually worth that day? Man, I I had the pleasure uh, a few years ago of leading a a kid through children's ministry. He was uh, 8, 9, and 10 when I had him. His name was Nolan. He, uh, He got diagnosed with neuroblastoma at age 4. Um, doctors told him he didn't have a chance. Beats it. Strong little fighter. Beats it. 
And it comes back in the time that we're together. And it comes back strong. And I remember when his nausea got too much for him, we'd go sit together and he'd say things like this to me. The pain hurts a lot. But by golly, I'm so glad Jesus is bigger than the pain. This is a boy that suffered much at a young age and knew this, Christ. And he knew the hope of Christ. Nolan went on to pass. And uh, a little while after, I had a dream. And I was running a race. I see a little boy scamper by me. He turns back and I notice it's Nolan. And he looks back as we're running this race together, as it says in Hebrews 12. He looks back to me and he just says this, it was worth it. It's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ in our sufferings now and for the future hope when they will be gone. Paul says, I'd give everything away. If I could gain Christ, the knowledge of him and the power of his resurrection. Hmm. So this is all that we gain in him. We gain our right standing before God. We gain hope now and forevermore. What have you gained lately in not looking to Christ? Are you willing to lose what you think are gains that are actually not working in your favor in order to gain Christ? We have the temptation of wealth and status, earning our own favor. I think all those are pretty well known, and I think those will be around with us, and they should all be counted loss for the sake of Christ. But there's a temptation of our day that I actually want to call out briefly, and I want to say like Paul to watch out, and it's watch out for the priority of knowing yourself. See, I don't think many of us are too concerned about actually becoming righteous, doing good works in order to justify ourselves. But rather, I think we're trying to justify ourselves around the law now by saying, this is who I am. This is the way I am. And there's grace. I don't need to change, I don't need to do whatever, you should be loving accepting me for who I am. And the priority of knowing our true identity has become the main grounds for our justification. And I mentioned earlier that we tend to gravitate towards novelty. There's been a lot of new personality tests, and we're not lacking for these tools that tell us how to know ourselves better. And used appropriately, they can be a help. Every single one of them has told me I'm a sinner. Shocker. <laughs> um, but my question is, have we skipped, tipped the scales too far in the direction of the priority of knowing self? Because Galatians 2.20 is pretty clear. And it's been my meditation now for a little over a year where it says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christians, our confession is this. Joe Bird has died. Adam has died. Robin has died. Tori has died. John has died. Garrison 
has died. And in his place, and in your place, Christ now lives. The priority of the gospel is this, the putting off of the old self and putting on Christ. I read an article very timely this week where it says, we're so busy putting something in front of us and our identity so that we can hide what is truly there when we should be busy hiding ourselves in Christ. Because again, our confession is this, knowing Christ and nothing else, Garrison has died. And in his place, Christ now lives. It doesn't matter what your personality type is. Jesus said, that person has died, and I'm making that person new. And I'm bringing that person further into my image, because God is in the business of this, not conforming you to the best image of you, the best version of yourself. He's in the business of this, conforming you to the image of his son, Jesus. Our aim is not self-mastery and an intimate knowledge of ourselves, but it's an intimate knowledge of Christ. Robert Murray McShane, an old Scottish pastor, Can't say it any better. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. What would Paul's response be to your prioritizing self-knowledge? I count everything as loss, even myself. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Church, resolve with me today and the rest of our days to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and nothing else. I want to leave you with this powerful illustration from Alistair Begg, a Scottish preacher across the pond. And he says this about the, the thief on the cross. He says, imagine him going to the gates where the angel is checking everybody in. And he says, who are you? And how did you get here? And his response is so simple. He says, the man on the middle cross said, I can come in. Well, surely you've been baptized. Surely you went to next steps class. Vital grace. Surely you've become a member. No. Well, you know about the doctrine of justification, right? Nope. All I know is this. The man on the middle cross said, I can come in. Put all of your eggs in that basket as that man did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for all that we have in Jesus, all that we have to gain in this life through our suffering and forevermore. Lord, all your promises are yes and amen, and we look forward to them. God, comfort us, uh, those who are suffering now. Would they gain, would we all gain more of you? Uh, Do this work that only you can do, Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com, download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at thevinecc. Have a great week.